You know, for most people, the Christmas holiday is a scandalous disappointment, isn't it? See, for many people, Christmas is sort of this annual hoax that things will finally get better, but they never actually do, do they? See, for millions of people in America, Christmas is filled with these fantasy-fueled expectations that the Christmas spirit, whatever that is, will somehow bring them the happiness they've always wanted but never actually experienced. And every year, the outcome is exactly the same. Nothing ever changes. Not really, anyway. And you see, the reason why nothing changes, the reason why December 26th is no different, and people wake up to the mess of open presence and the mess of their lives still there, the reason why that is the case, get this, is because the Christ in whom they believe never actually got out of the manger. The reason why they were double-crossed again by the Christmas season is because the Christ whose good vibes and positive energy they hoped to glean was nothing more than Santa's twin, a tribal deity, a seasonal good luck charm who will give people what they want if they just jump through the right hoops. But the problem with that is, is that Christ will not be anybody's Santa. He will not be anybody's genie or vending machine. He will never settle for second place. He, he will not merely allow people to add him to a long list of other things that compete for their affections. No, the terms of Christ are clear and unmistakable. He will be their highest treasure or he will be their enemy. He will be their greatest allegiance or he will be their judge. They must give up all or they lose everything. Those are the terms. And they're glorious. And you know, you know that he did not come to put presents under a tree. He didn't come to help us turn over a new leaf, merely. He didn't come to make good people better. No, Jesus Christ came to the planet to make dead people To raid the tombs of spiritual death and save ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair. And then, and then at the end of the age, build a kingdom in which righteousness dwells. You see, that's Advent. That's what we're talking about when we talk about Advent, the celebration of the word made flesh. When God himself arrived in human form, when the Father sent His Son to save the elect, when mild He laid His glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. You understand, that's not Christmas. That's Christianity. That, that defines us. That means everything to us that transcends seasons and months and holidays on the calendar 
Because you see, all that Advent is, all that Christ is, should and must grip the souls of the saints every single day of our lives because the baby that we worship and to whom we give our highest allegiance is no longer an infant tender and mild, but the reigning Lord of heaven and earth who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And this morning, we finally reached the culmination of our Christmas contemplations. We're all month long. We've been asking the question, what child is this? What child is this? That's not only the question of the song. That's the most pivotal question in human history. What child is this exactly? Who became a man? Who healed the sick? Who raised the dead? Who claimed to be God? proved that he was God with the miracles that he did, who was betrayed and arrested and beaten within an inch of his life and and murdered and publicly executed and raised triumphant from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he intercedes as high priest, ruling the cosmos, calling all men everywhere to repent and believe. Who is this child? And I know you already know the answer. But in our text this morning, we get the most definitive of answers as to who this child is. And what we see in the sacred text is that who the child is, is shepherd. He is king. He is savior. He is Messiah. And he is Lord. He is shepherd. He is king. He is savior. He is Messiah. He is Lord. And the thing about those titles, let's call them his saving vocations. The thing about his saving vocations is that all of those things are proof, you understand? Proof that he is enough for us. Proof that everything we could possibly need or ask for in this life or in the next is supremely found in him alone. That everything we were created to need and enjoy forever is found ultimately in the God who became man for us and for our salvation. So this morning we go to the holy night itself, the night of the Savior's birth, the arrival of the King, who will come again and finish what he started. We're in Luke 2, the same text that Adam read, and here's where we're going this morning. This morning, for our, let's call them Christmas contemplations, I want you to see five saving vocations of Christ. Five saving vocations of Christ that are worthy of our marveling, our treasuring, our glory, and our praise. Five saving vocations of Christ. The scene breaks down into four parts. Let's begin first with the unpredictable census, the unpredictable census, because you would agree with me that perhaps nothing in life is more maddening than when big government meddles with your life. When political bureaucracy complicates things with silly mandates and senseless decrees, we know what that's like. That's exactly what we see in verses one through three. Look again at the text. Now there became in those days a decree from Caesar Augustus, the great one, to take a census of all the inhabited earth. 
This census was first established when Quirinius of Syria was governor, and all were going to register for the census, each one to their own city. Now, no one likes a census, and what this was was probably a tax, a census for tax purposes, but at least in America, they come to your door, or at least they used to. Now, everything's online, but you see, in the days of the Roman Empire, it was especially inconvenient because look at verse 3, you had to register for the census by going to your own hometown. And if you don't live there anymore, well, too bad, so sad, pack your bags and go. It's not a conversation. This is non-negotiable. The Roman Empire doesn't say please. You see, there are no exceptions to this rule, not even if you are nine months pregnant. I mean, this is, this is frustrating. This is stupid. This census was senseless. And it couldn't have possibly come at a worse time for Joseph and Mary. And yet at the exact same time, if you really think about it, this couldn't have come at a better time. The timing of the census was, was perfect. This is glorious. This is ideal. The reason why is because here on display behind the preposterous decree of Caesar Augustus, get this, is the invisible sovereignty of God working behind the scenes. Don't you see? Proverbs 21.1, remember what it says? The heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he pleases. And here it is clear that the heart of the Roman Caesar, the most powerful man on the planet at the time, was moved imperceptibly by God to inconvenience the world with an idiotic census. Why? Because there was a prophecy that needed to be fulfilled. Which brings us to part two. Part two, the unexceptional arrival. The unexceptional arrival. Look at verses four and five. Now even Joseph went from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? Because he was from the house and from the family of David to register with Mary who was engaged to him being pregnant. So you see that Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem in Judea. Do you know the distance between those two cities, towns? 90 miles. 90 miles. You travel 20 miles a day, that's four to five days of travel time. I suppose that's not bad when you're nine months pregnant. It's going to be a little different. This is bad. This is really, really bad. Except for the fact that behind the incredible inconvenience and insensitivity of a Roman Empire that didn't give a rip about anybody was the sovereign smile of God working out his plan. Because you see it, don't you? The, the theology in the text, the prophecy in the text that at that time had not yet been fulfilled. Because when you look at the Old Testament predictions of the Messiah, they get increasingly specific as they go, don't they? In Genesis 3, we find that the Messiah would be a man. Genesis 22, we see that the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham. He would be an Israelite. In Genesis 49, we find that he would be from the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel 7, we find that he would be from the family line of David. Isaiah 7, we find that his mother would be a virgin. And Micah chapter 5, we find that he would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. 
But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, one will go forth for you to be ruler in Israel. And his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. I mean, you see what Luke is doing, don't you? Without telling us that God is in control, he's telling us that God is in control and that the senseless census from Caesar Augustus was a sovereign design of God to get a virgin from Nazareth in Bethlehem also that ancient prophecy could be fulfilled. Do you see? And 2,000 years later, nothing has changed. The ways and works of God are absolutely the same. He is still in control. He is still sovereign. He still governs and guides and orchestrates and determines and decrees and causes and controls everything that comes to pass. But you see behind every trial and challenge and pain and surprise in our lives is the sovereign smile of God working out his plan, which will culminate in the kingdom of his son. And speaking of his son, his long-awaited arrival to the earth was not normal. This was not ideal. This was strange. This was inconvenient. This was profoundly unexceptional, if not even a little bit undignified. Look at verses 6 and 7. Now it was the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. And notice, she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she swaddled him and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. And there it is. As silent as the grave, the very moment the Jews were waiting for, for thousands and thousands of years since Genesis 3. Here is the, the arrival of the one who would crush the serpent's head. Here is the arrival of the one to overthrow Satan's reign. Here in this moment is the arrival of the one to redeem ruined sinners from the slavery of sin. Here is the one who would reconcile sinners to God as the treasure of their souls. Here is the one who would restore the people of Israel back to God. Here is the one who would rule and reign on the earth and be worshipped by the nations. Here he is. Here is the king. Finally, born in a barn in a dumpy village laid in a dirty manger. And it just proves, doesn't it, that, that God loves to use irony to unfold his plan? That again and again, God always picks ways and means to advance his plan that are startlingly odd and unexpected. Never the way that we would have chosen, never the way we would have written the script if we were the ones in charge, and we are glad that we are not the ones in charge. And the reason why Mary had to wrap her infant and put him in a manger of all places was because there was no room for them at the inn. And don't think hotel, don't think something nice, nothing in, about this inn was nice. What it was was rented quarters on someone's property, kind of like an Airbnb in which there were three compartments, two for people, one for animals. Once for people were all rented, which leaves only the one for animals. 
And so this teenage girl had to give birth to her first baby ever in the hay and manure of a grimy stall fit only for the livestock. Hardly a, a mother's dream. And here's the thing about this, is that that's not the most important part of the scene. It's, it's not even close. There is a detail in the text wildly overlooked by most people. And it is, get this, it is the title that Luke gives to the sacred child. Look at verse 7. And she gave birth, literally the word is, to her firstborn son. And she swaddled him and laid him in a manger. I mean, you hear what's odd about that, right? Why did Luke need to remind us that this is her firstborn son, as if we forgot? As if she's a first-time mother. Like, it slipped our mind that she didn't have any other kids. Did you see what's happening here? And yet, here's the thing. Luke doesn't think we're dumb or that we have forgotten somehow, but like a good theologian, he is doing something incredible and profound because you see, the word that Luke uses to describe this little boy is a special word, a rare word, a significant word. That word, firstborn, that doesn't merely mean the first son chronologically. Get this, it means the chosen son. It means the son who is the heir of the family fortune. It's a term of dignity and rank and supremacy. And get this, it just happens to be the very word used in Psalm 89 verse 27 as a title for the Messiah himself. This is the King of David. He is here. And Luke uses that very word here in the text to accentuate the irony of the scene. Here is the long-awaited king and Messiah entered into the hay and manure of a fallen world in desperate need of fixing. And that's exactly what he's going to do. Which brings us to part four. Part four, the inexpressible announcement. The inexpressible announcement, because speaking of irony, without a moment's notice, Luke all of a sudden transfers, transi transitions us to another scene that literally doesn't make any sense at all. It's the weirdest scene, totally random. We go from newborn infant crying in a stable to a bunch of shepherd farm boys sitting in a field watching their sheep. And on the surface, it doesn't make any sense at all. These two scenes have nothing to do with one another at first. But you and I both know that God doesn't do random, does he? And these farm boy shepherds tending their flocks and the silence of night are about to get the surprise of a lifetime. Look at verses 8 through 10. And in the same region, there were shepherds watching their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And literally, they were terrified with a great fear. Well, that escalated quickly. That changed in a real hurry. From silence and darkness to the blinding glory of the Lord, in less than a second, maybe these poor shepherds almost suffer from cardiac arrest because all of a sudden now, now they are looking into the face of an extraterrestrial, an angelic being from the presence of God himself, which means this will either be the best day of their life or the last day of their life. 
And yet there's no need to worry, only to worship and celebrate and rejoice because the angel says, do not fear. Why? For behold, behold, I proclaim to you good news of great joy, which will be for all of the people. Think about those words. Good news of great joy, which will be for all the people, i.e. the people of Israel. Uh, Let me ask you this. When do you think is the last time Israel heard those words, good news of great joy? Do you think that's all at all what they were expecting? Do you think that, that they had all expected those words to come to them, to apply to them, to be directed to, to them? Probably sounded like a foreign language. That can't be right. You must be talking about somebody else or that, that can't be meant for us. And yet the angel got the address right. Because look at the good news that brings great joy. Verse 11. Because today, this day, there was born to you, notice, a Savior who is Christ the Lord in the city of David. I mean, that that is so astonishingly theological. I, I almost don't even know where to begin except to quote scripture. For a child will be born to us. A son shall be given to us. And the dominion will rest on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. As for the increase of his dominion and to peace, there will be no end. But on the throne of David. And over his kingdom, he will establish it and he will uphold it with justice and righteousness from now on until eternity. That is Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And here he is arrived. He is here emerged onto the very planet that he will conquer and rule one day. And you understand every single word in the angel statement. Born. Savior. Christ, Lord, David, every single one of those words just loaded with theological significance. The great serpent crushing, sin-bearing, wrath-conquering, kingdom-ruling king and savior and messiah has arrived. And you know that when there's good news to share... When you hear good news, there's sort of like sort of a pecking order of people who should hear the news first, right? Like there's a sort of like unwritten rule that the people who are closest to you should be the first ones to hear good news. And what that does is raise the question, why were the shepherds first? Why were they, out of all people, at the top of the list to hear the news and the announcement? of the arrival of the great king and Messiah to to rule all things, to restore all things. Why were they at the top of the list? Why not the elite? Why not the aristocracy? Why not the government? Why not the Caesar? Why not Herod? Why not the Pharisees? Why not the Levites? Why not Joseph and Mary's own family for crying out loud? Why these shepherds? And there are theories about this, and many of them are dumb. 
people invent stories that the shepherds were outcasts and hated and despised, which isn't true. And yet people assume that to be the case, and so they assert that Christ, his mission was to come only for the lowly. Other people say that shepherds were poor, that they were destitute, bottom of the ladder socioeconomically, and that's not true either. And yet people assume that to be the case, and so they assume that Christ came only for the underprivileged. And yet even if those things about shepherds were true, which they're not, but even if they were true, it totally misses the point. You see, the point is their occupation as shepherds mirrors and reflects, get this, the Messiah's own occupation to be the shepherd of his own people. That's the, that's the connection. I mean, Luke just alluded to Micah chapter 5, did he not? And the thing about Micah chapter 5 is that it goes on to say that the Messiah would come and be the shepherd of Israel. David was a shepherd. These are shepherds. Shepherds are everywhere. And so who better to hear the announcement of the great shepherd than these shepherds tending their flocks? The point is, the new and greater David has arrived. The great shepherd king from David's line who will save and deliver and rule and satisfy the souls of his flock forever has come. He has arrived and he will come again to finish what he started. And the angel describes in verse 12 the telltale sign of how this baby could be identified, namely lying in a manger. That'll limit their options down to one. When all of a sudden, to punctuate the poignance of the moment, God puts on a concert for the shepherds to celebrate his son. Look at verse 13. And suddenly, there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among men with whom he is pleased. I mean, the scene here is incredible. Already blinded by the glory of the Lord, God tears open the fabric of physical reality for them to see behind the scenes what the angelic world is doing. And what the shepherds see is a multitude of heavenly hosts. And the thing is about that word host is that it is the word stratias, which means army. This is an army. These are not chicks in choir robes chubby babies with wings. These are angelic warriors who according to Isaiah chapter 6, when they speak, the ground shakes. And there are millions and maybe billions of these supernatural soldiers breaking the sound barrier in their praise of the glory of God and the arrival of the king. And notice what they declare is that peace is coming to earth it is coming to earth through the king who was just born. Peace is coming when he brings paradise back to earth. Peace is coming when he comes to reclaim the earth that rightfully belongs to him. Peace is coming. When Jesus Christ arrives with lasers in his eyes and a crown on his head and a sword in his mouth and he will trample the nations in the winepress of his wrath. Mark my words, peace is coming. 
And there's debate about that last phrase and what it means. The men with whom God is pleased, who, who is he pleased with? Who is the declaration about? And I think it's the elect. I think it's those chosen from all eternity. Those handpicked by the father before time and given to his son for whom he would die and purchase with his blood. Those who would be inhabitants, those who would be citizens of the great kingdom and then beyond in the new heavens and the new earth. These are the ones whom God has placed his sovereign good pleasure to receive the infinite salvation blessings available and purchased by his son. And you understand, beloved, this declaration in verse 14 is the down payment guarantee that the Savior in whom you believe will come again and make things right in the world. And these shepherds rightly perceive the implication and the invitation to go and find this child, which is what they do, which brings us to part four, the inexplicable visitation. The inexplicable visitation. The shepherds search the village, they find the lodge, they locate the stall, they knock on the door, they are allowed in, they see the child, and then they declare to Joseph and Mary all the things that they had seen and heard. And verse 18, you notice there were others in the stall with Joseph and Mary, maybe family, and they marveled, they marveled. They were staggered and they were stunned at what the shepherds had to say. But you notice there in verse 19 that Mary has a different response. Something more subdued and contemplative. The text says she was treasuring all these things, pondering them in her heart. Think about that. Treasuring. Pondering meditating on the deepest eternal significance of the things that she had heard. And what that means is whatever bond there is between a mom and the baby that she just carried in her womb for nine months is here radically altered and profoundly transformed. Think about it. She just gave birth to the one who brought the universe into existence. She just gave birth to the one who will put death to death forever. She held in her arms the one who holds the universe into being by the word of his power. She just delivered the very one who would deliver and save the world from the reign of sin and the dominion of Satan. She would raise the very one who would raise himself from and as she looked into the eyes of her infant son, at some level it must have dawned on her that she was looking into the face of God himself. And beloved, maybe you feel like Israel did. That the words good news and great joy could not possibly apply to you. That the words good news and great joy that's for somebody else. That's for somebody else who didn't screw up their life. That's for somebody else who hasn't lived a life like mine. That's for somebody else. That, 
that can't apply to me. And yet, beloved, you need to know that the drought of good news and great joy this morning has come to an end. Because the five saving vocations of Jesus Christ, worthy of our marveling and treasuring and glory and praise, and here they are very quickly, number one, Jesus Christ is a shepherd. Jesus Christ is a shepherd. It's, it's embedded in the reference to Micah chapter 5. The Messiah would be a shepherd. He is our shepherd. The good shepherd who, who came and laid down his life in our place, taking the wrath that we deserve for sins that he didn't commit. You understand he is gentle and humble and restores the soul. He loves his little flock. He loves you, little flock. He knows you by name. And he leads you and he loves you and mediates kindness and grace to you. And he satisfies the deepest longings of your soul. And the question is, church, do you trust in your shepherd? Do you treasure him? Do you marvel at him? Do you give him glory? Do you give your shepherd praise? Number two, Jesus Christ is a king. He is a king. A warrior king who most certainly does rule all things now to be sure. But when he comes again, he will make his rule explicit and visible and powerful and glorious. He will crush the serpent's head. He will break the spell of sin. He will bring the planet back to its pristine, pre-fall, paradise-like conditions. And so the question is, church, do you hope in your king? Do you marvel at him? Do you treasure him? Do you give glory to him? Do you give praise to your king? Number three, Jesus Christ is a savior. He is a savior. Isn't that what the angel said? Born for you this day is a savior. That's exactly what he is. He is a sin-bearing savior. A substitute a sacrificial savior who, who bore the wrath of God in full. This is a savior who doesn't merely make good people better, but saves ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair. He saves them from the prison of sin. He saves them from the wrath of God. He saves them from the slavery to sin and spiritual death. He gulped down the ocean of the wrath of God to save sinners from drowning in the lake of fire forever. He reconciles sinners to God as the treasure of their souls. The question is, have you yielded to this Savior? Have you yielded? and glad-hearted submission and faith to this Savior. Does he have your allegiance? Do you understand that now that you are rescued, or if you still need to be rescued, that what it looks like to belong to him is a life of marveling and treasuring and glory and praise? Number four, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. What does that mean? But that he is the perfect weapon of God's eternal plan. To be the Messiah means that he himself is the answer to every dilemma of life and the soul. 
That the one who is God and man reconciles God and men. That he is the one who will fix what Adam broke. He will regain what Adam lost. He will restore what Adam gambled when he believed the devil's lie. The question is, church, do you delight in your Messiah? Do you marvel at him? Do you treasure him? Do you give glory to him? Do you give praise to him? And last but not least, number five, Jesus Christ is the Lord. Meaning what? Meaning he is Yahweh. This is God himself in human form. The fullness of God in bodily form, fully divine, eternal God, equal to the Father, infinite in his beauty and worth and value and glory and supremacy, worthy of our marveling and our treasuring and our glory and our praise. The question is, church, can you think of any reason at all why he can't be trusted? Can you think of any enemy that he will not conquer and subdue in the end? Name one. Can you think of any pain in your life at this moment that he will not eventually banish forever, never to return? Name one. Can you think of any fear that he won't kill eventually? Name one. Any sadness he won't remove? Any tear that he will not wipe from your face? Any longing in your soul that he will not satisfy forever and ever and ever? You see, this is who the child is. A shepherd, a king, a savior, the Messiah, and the Lord. And the thing about those saving vocations of Christ is that all of those things are proof that all that he is is what we were created to need and enjoy forever. All those things are but the evidence that everything you could possibly need or ask for in this life or in the next is supremely found in him alone. Let's pray to our great king, Savior, Lord, and Shepherd. Oh, King Jesus, it is unfathomable to us to know what it is that you left the realms of glory to dwell among the sons of men, that you, eternal God from all eternity, forever the marvel and an enjoyment of your Father, and the worship of the angels. You were the king of angels before you came. And yet we're grateful for the plan for you to incarnate as a human being, to come and die in our place, take the wrath that we deserve for the very sins that we committed, that found in you, Jesus Christ, are the innumerable, priceless treasures of eternal salvation paid for in full that we receive by faith alone, by grace alone, in faith alone, in you alone, for the glory of God alone. Oh, Lord, we're so grateful for that. I pray that you would help us.
Oh, Lord, that we would be heralds, that we would be spokesmen, that we would have lion-hearted courage and broken-hearted compassion to reflect you and display you and proclaim you and declare you to those in our lives who do not know this. Help us, O oh Lord. We want to be ambassadors, and we know that that first begins with us finding our supreme joy and delight in you above all things. So grant us that, we ask. In your mighty and matchless name we pray.